From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at how the DNR is balancing tribal traditions with science in its wolf management. Then we'll learn how an augmented reality training tool can help people identify and treat concussions. This tool was designed to have the learner actually experience the symptoms that this injured player is experiencing. That adds to the empathy that's created. Plus, we'll explore how Milwaukee became known as the Cream City and efforts to preserve the city's cream-colored brick buildings. Cream City Brick really put Milwaukee on the map. It was sort of our badge of honor for a lot of the 19th century, um, and it's important to celebrate that. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board is expected to take up a hotly debated topic this week. After months of preparation, the Department of Natural Resources will submit the agency's proposed wolf management plan for a vote. The plan attempts to balance maintaining a healthy population with concerns about wolves harming livestock and pets. The last state management plan dates back to 1999. Among the groups weighing in on the species management is the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, often called Glyphwick. The commission recently launched a multi-year study with UW-Madison to learn how wolves might be driving back chronic wasting disease in white-tailed deer. During a conference in northern Wisconsin, the commission's biological service director, Jonathan Gilbert, talked with WUWM's Susan Bentz about the study and Glyphwick's position on the DNR proposed wolf management plan. Glyphwick, so we're an intertribal uh, natural resources agency comprised of 11 Ojibwe tribes. Each of these tribes have rights to hunt and fish and gather off of their reservations under their own rules and regulations. And our job at Glyphwick is to assist them in the implementation of these rights in a way that's both biologically sound and culturally appropriate. In addition to that, we assist our member tribes in the management and care of these resources that support the rights. So what was the impetus for this, for the collaboration, for the study with UW? Okay, so we're talking about three things. We're talking about Mayangan, a wolf, which is the brother, the relative for the Ojibwe. We're talking about white-tailed deer, Wawashkishi, um, that venison that they use for food, staple, feasts, ceremonies, all kinds of reasons, very important. And then this disease that affects deer, for sure, will kill them. But they're unsure about the human health impacts, right? And can it affect them? And so there's a lot of unknowns about that. And thus, deer infected with CWD means tribes would not want to hunt deer, which is another way to abrogate their treaty rights. Right? So if we infect deer with a disease that keeps the tribes from hunting it, it's the same as saying to the tribes, no, you can't hunt deer anymore. Right? So it's affecting their exercise of their treaty rights, this disease that's coming in. But the tribes know that wolves are there to help take care of these herds of deer, to kill the sick ones and all. And so as CWD was coming north into northern Wisconsin, 
tribes would ask me, well, what about wolves? Will wolves take care of that? Will wolves keep it from entering here? That's a really good question, right? So we know that wolves will do that for lots of different kinds of wounded animals or weak animals or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, very good question. And so now it's my job as kind of the lead scientist for Glyphwick to kind of take that and bring that to the university setting where they do that kind of research. And now we have this nice research project that's come from the tribes, so it's what I would call tribally driven research, brought it to the university to do our best scientific work on it, and try to bring those things together, that cultural view and the science view. And that's the essence of my job, essentially, is trying to meld those things together, Western science or whatever we call that, and indigenous knowledge or TEK or what we ever call that bring those things together. As time passes and more is learned, what do you think can be achieved through this study? What do you hope will be achieved? First of all, it's the protection of treaty rights. That's my job, right? Like I said before, if CWD comes up into northern Wisconsin and people stop hunting deer, that's a problem. And so success will be continuation of deer hunting. People continue on to hunt deer for food, ceremony, for cultural reasons, right? Um, the other part of it is the role of wolves in our ecosystem, right? And so tribes value wolves because of their cultural histories and all of that, but there's other reasons to value wolves. And one of them is what we would call in this cold way ecosystem services, right? Playing a role in a fully functioning ecosystem by keeping sick and injured deer you know, taking them out, right? And helping to keep that population healthy. So protection of treaty rights, deer hunting, all of that important stuff, but also the value of wolves and how they fit into the ecosystem and how when the tribes talk about wolves keeping their place in the environment, that that's, this is part of that. So that's a message you hope is heard by the DNR or the Natural Resources Board Absolutely. or the state look, legislature? If you look at the goals or objectives or whatever they call them in their wolf management plan, you look at those that are for the northern part of the state, there they're talking about that. They're talking about ecosystem services. They're talking about wolves playing a role in the environment and all that. So, yeah, DNR maybe was thinking about that, but guess what? The tribes are telling them that too. And yeah, I'll, we'll take credit for some of that. You know, that perspective coming out and being articulated in the wolf plan, yeah, it's a good thing. Looking ahead, if the Natural Resources Board takes up the proposed plan, did Glyphwood take a position? We've had many interactions with the state about this wolf management plan and the, and the rules that are going along with it. We'll have people testifying there at the Natural Resources Board. Um, I think, you know, the major points that we'll make, I'm sure, are things like, well, first of all, tribes are just opposed to hunting wolves, right? They're opposed to recreational killing of wolves, and, and we'll say that. Um, the plan is a, a vast improvement over the 1999 plan, um, where there's no specific numeric goals, that there's these more uh, uh, ecosystem kind of role that wolves play. Um, so that part of it is really good also, we like that. Um, there's some effort to protect 
wolf packs that are using reservations, so they've established what they call subzones around reservations that are designed to help allow the tribes to manage in a, in a better way those wolf packs that are in that area. Um, so that's a good thing. We wish that there were this split of committees instead of trying to bring everybody together in one room and fighting all the time that we had professionals and biologists. And a science and a, a, science and a stakeholder. And a stakeholder side, that would be a much preferable way to, to run things, I think. At least then the, the scientists can talk about what we know without having to worry about all of the noise from people who are not scientists. And, and they have a role, I'll grant that for sure, they have a role to play, but when we're all mixed up together, it's really hard to have those kinds of science-based conversations, in my experience. So what about the, the move that actually was passed in the state legislature requiring a cap on the wolf population? So that is people trying to guess what's going to happen with the wolves and say, we don't want more than this. Tribes are saying that they want the wolves to figure out how many wolves should be in Wisconsin and let's manage them at that level, right? So it's kind of let the wolves do what they're going to do, right? And not put any kind of cap on it or any kind of a population goal on it or anything like that. Let the wolves figure that out. Putting a cap means you're gonna to have to decide, okay, not more than this certain number. Now we're, now we're gonna start arguing about, well, how do we count wolves? And do we know exactly? And what about all those, what do they call them, loner wolves that are out there? And are really counting, and so it, it just introduces all of this complexity into things that's really, really hard to deal with. I dealt with that with deer management for years. So at this point, I mean, your job is your job, representing the tribes and their, um, their tribal rights. But you, you have, throughout your career, blended both Western science and the indigenous knowledge. How do you see that now as a, as a scientist? It's been a, a learning experience, right? So I started whenever it was 40 years ago. I didn't know anything. Frankly, it wasn't really a big part of my job for the first decade probably, you know? Because we were so focused on court and on battling the state over treaty rights and all of that. And then gradually, okay, started more of that cultural part of my job started to become more apparent to me and out, you know, and kind of told to me that you need to pay attention to this. And so over the years, I've just learned things and gradually and slowly tried to kind of incorporate what I know about tribal culture into the science work that I do. And I'm sure I make a whole ton of mistakes and don't do it well in lots of ways, I'm sure. But I try, and it's all just from on-the-job experience and all of that. Just kind of listening, being involved with the tribes, socializing with people, going to powwows, going to ceremonies, just listening and seeing what happens. I mean, there's, like I said, there's no class that tells you how to do this, right? It's just you got to kind of absorb it from doing your job, living your life. What I was trying to get at is, is there much more to be learned and gleaned from indigenous knowledge that can really benefit our ecosystems, our societies? I think that's obvious that there is. I mean, they have thousands of years of observation and living here 
being with all of these resources. They've collected all kinds of knowledge that we don't know anything about. There's obviously ways that that can help in this, whatever we call management of natural resources. We just got to figure out how, right? The tribes need to feel comfortable about sharing that because mm, not always the case. It's been stolen from them in the past. And, all right, and they got to be comfortable sharing. And then us science types have to figure out, okay, how do we use that knowledge in our science? Or should we try to, or do we do it in parallel tracks? These are all really interesting questions about how to use indigenous knowledge, right? I don't know what the answer is at all. Truly? Yeah, so here, here's my, so here's my analogy. You've heard this whole saying about two-eyed seeing. Have you heard that? So you see with one eye from indigenous perspective, another eye from Western science, whatever we call it, perspective, okay? So that's kind of like, okay, this nice little model. All right, now I think about it as a scientist from a physiological perspective. So when you are monocular, one eye, when you look with one eye only, everything is flat. There's no depth of field, there's no perspective. When you look with two eyes, all of a sudden you have this perspective and depth of field that you can't have by just looking at one eye. So we need to look with both eyes, indigenous, Western science, because it gives us that perspective and that depth of field that we can't get just by one or the other. And if we try to mash them together into a single thing, then we're making it monocular instead of binocular. Jonathan Gilbert is the Biological Services Director for the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. He spoke with WUWM's environmental reporter, Susan Bentz. You can follow Susan's reporting on the Wolf Management Plan at wuwm.com. In its landmark 1954 decision in Brown v. Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court found school segregation unconstitutional. But the path to desegregating schools hasn't been straightforward. In the following decades, states that had resisted desegregation were forced to follow the law. New segregation academies popped up in small towns throughout the South, like Leland, Mississippi, a town of about 6,000 people in the Mississippi Delta. Leland's experience desegregating its public schools is the subject of a recent documentary from PBS called The Harvest. It features a number of the students who were part of the first generation of kids desegregating schools, including Pam Pepper a U.S. District Court judge for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Pepper was one of the few white students who returned to Leland's public schools, and she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about her experience and the documentary. One of the questions I had just as somebody who grew up in a very small town here in Wisconsin, during the docuseries, both you and the other people featured in, the, in this series really paint this as a, as a black and white culture. And it seems so odd having grown up in such a small town because I can't quite picture that. When, when you were growing up there, was the town itself very segregated? People just lived on one side or the, or the other? Yes. It was physically segregated. The town has um, a beautiful creek that sort of bisects it going one direction. And there's a railroad track that bisects it going perpendicular. So the town's almost just in quadrants, if you will. And when I was growing up, for the most part, white people lived on one side of the railroad track, creek divide, and, and black people lived on another. And 
as best I can tell, since I've been back as an adult, it is still that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, growing up, uh, y- you initially in elementary school went to um, something we now kind of call segregation academies. Uh, these were schools that popped up pretty quickly after Mississippi, and I believe other states were forced to desegregate their schools. What was it like going to one of these segregation academies? It's a little bit hard to answer that question because keep in mind, um, I started first grade in the 1970 school year. Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954. Mississippi managed to resist integration for 16 years until finally there was a Supreme Court case that directly said to Mississippi, you have to do it and you have to do it now. So I went into first grade that year. I had no consciousness of any of that. I just went to school where I got dropped off to go to school. And as you pointed out, it was a very tiny town. And so a lot of the kids I went to school with at the quote-unquote academy, the white school, were kids I knew from my neighborhood and kids I played with when I was little. I remember the, the physical geography of it because it was... Out on the highway, there wasn't any landscaping. It was all kind of dusty and dirty surrounding it. Um, We weren't near anything, really. My recollection is, and I could be wrong, but my recollection is that there had been some sort of either tractor storage facility or it had been something else. It had been, the building had been, I thought, something else. And it got turned quickly into a school. Now, your your parents decided to, after elementary school, move you into the public school system. At this point um, in in Leland, the public schools were almost entirely black. Uh, the vast it, it seems like the vast majority of um, white students had gone to these academies, or is that not? I wouldn't say almost entirely black. By the time I went to middle school, which is when I went to the public school, I would say probably maybe 18 to 20 percent white and 80 percent black. So a lot of white families had sent their kids to the academies uh, or to, to parochial schools. But there were more white students in the public school at that time than I think there are now. Wow. Yeah. When it came to the schools themselves, something that is talked about in the docu-series is that there was, of course, this requirement to desegregate the schools in theory. Of course, we have these segregation academies that pop up, but even inside the schools themselves, it seemed like there was still some level of segregation, whether it was, you know, creating different reading classes um, in which kids would end up being segregated or having segregated dances and, and things of that ilk. What was that like? You're sort of asking about two separate things. The different classes that you're talking about, that happened at the elementary school level. I was not a part of that because I was not at the public school at that time. But one of the things that happened, you know, there was still resistance to integration, even though it was happening and it was required. And so there were these groups called ability groups that were created. And kids in first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade were put in, quote, unquote, ability groups ostensibly, it was the higher-performing students went in the group A and the lower-performing students went in group E or whatever it went to. In, in reality, it was another way to separate 
white students and black students. And I think if you watched The Harvest, my friend Van Poindexter, classmate, talked very poignantly about the fact that, I mean, he's one of the smartest people I know and always has been. And he ended up in a lower ability group, and he was determined he was not going to allow that to continue, and he worked his way up to the higher ability group. That was a part that I, I didn't really see because I, I didn't come to the school till later. The separate dances and things, that was more, you know, nobody ever said black and white kids aren't going to go to dances together or black and white kids after the football game on Friday night are going to go to two different places to hang out. It was not dictated. It was not required by the schools or anything of that nature. That's the part that I look back on, I think, in some respects with the most regret because it just nobody really questioned it. It just was what it was. Football game got over and everybody slapped everybody on the back and waved. And then the black kids, you know, went over to where they went and the white kids went to where they went. I didn't ever invite a black friend over to first spend the night, you know, and I look back now and think, why not? We sat together for eight, nine hours a day. We did sports together. We did extracurricular activities together. I had friends, and yet that friendship stopped as soon as the school activities stopped. As one person said in the film, over the summers, you know, we hardly saw each other at all. And it wasn't it, it wasn't like anybody decided it or said it. It just was the way it was. And I that that I look back on with a tremendous amount of regret. That that I wish I had just looked over one day and said, "Do you want to come over to my house after school and <laughs> seen what happened?" One of the things you've mentioned is Leland today is in some ways more segregated. We of course also live in a city that has hyper-segregated schools. In some ways, it feels like your generation in Leland was part of this kind of grand experiment that, for a variety of reasons, kind of failed. We continue to have hyper-segregated schools um, in places like Leland and uh, in our community here in Milwaukee. How do you view what happened with your generation growing up in the context of this larger conversation about desegregating schools and and the continued necessity for it? It's hard to answer. I've thought a lot about it since I was asked to participate in in the documentary. The person who made it was a classmate of mine from grade school. And on a micro level, how do I view it? I view my experience as pure dumb luck. It, It was a wonderful thing for me. Junior high and high school were wonderful for me. And I was lucky enough to be fairly oblivious to how unique that experience was, how fraught it was in other places uh, at the same time. Sometimes I was so oblivious that I didn't quite realize that there were tensions around me that, that I just wasn't aware of. But I will always be grateful for that experience and what gifts it gave me of you know, just learning that being around people who are different than you is a good thing, and it can it enriches your life. But on a broader scale, I, I've thought a lot about, you know, what didn't work? Was it the fact that having people sit together next to each other in class for eight hours a day, but then not having them interact in some of the most important aspects of their lives, their families, their churches, their their social activities— 
Was that a forecast for doom, that you can't just kind of force it in one false construct? It has to be somewhere else? I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the housing piece was not going along with the school piece. If people are living in separate communities, and I wonder sometimes if that's not a Milwaukee issue as well for our community, that if people are living in different communities, they are going to want to go to school in their community. They're going to want to go to school with other people who they know who've had the same experience that they have had. And maybe that's racially motivated, but maybe it's just, this is what's familiar to me. My parents went to this school. Their parents went to this school. And if those communities are separate, then the schools are going to be separate. And I honestly don't know. And, you know, Wisconsin's been through so many iterations of there was desegregation and then there was a suburban desegregation litigation. There's been lots of litigation around voucher schools. People come at it from 8 million different directions, and yet the problem persists, and it makes you wonder if there's something more deep-seated or more, more rooted than just, we've got white people and black people in the same school together for Monday through Friday. Does there need to be something more than that? Do we need to reach each other in some way beyond that and interact with each other in some way beyond that? And I, I don't know what the, I wish I knew what the answer is. Um, I sure don't. I think if you had the answer, uh, you'd be a very rich person. I think I, th- <laughs> I think I would consider uh, some life work to have been done. Yes. <laughs> well, Pam, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your experiences. Thank you for having me. It's I'm grateful to talk about it, and I hope that people will will watch the harvest. Uh, not so much because of my participation, but Doug Blackman and Sam Pollard did a lot of work over a lot of years, and it's an effort of love on their part. So I hope people will watch it. Judge Pam Pepper is a U.S. District Court judge for the Eastern District of Wisconsin, and one of the subjects of the PBS documentary The Harvest. She spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers, and you can find a link to the full film at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll speak with a historic preservationist about the history of Cream City bricks and what they might be made of. I know that that there are buildings in downtown where you can see the bones in the brick. But first, we'll learn how a virtual and augmented reality training tool can help people identify and treat concussions. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. No matter how you interact with athletes, be it a coach, parent, spectator, or trainer, being able to identify and treat a potential concussion is an important skill to have. The Center for Simulation and Innovation out of Concordia University aims to change both the learning and training landscape through the use of a new technology. One of their most recent projects is called the Field Assessment Simulator an augmented reality training tool for anyone interested in learning about concussions. The tool is a part of a concussion sim platform, creating realistic simulations of concussion symptoms to practice assessments in a safe and controlled environment. 
To learn more about the tool and its development, I'm joined by Dr. Cindy Fenske, the Executive Director of the Center for Simulation and Innovation. She begins by explaining how the Field Assessment Simulator was developed. Our company, the Center for Simulation and Innovation, otherwise known as the CSI, developed a field assessment trainer that would allow people that interact with athletes who are at risk for concussion to be able to determine the types of symptoms that the athlete is experiencing, to be able to ask some questions and make some determinations about whether or not these symptoms are problematic, and then make a decision about the best option for treatment, meaning do they need to be taken off right now by EMS? Is this something that could be seen a little bit later today, but it's requiring some treatment? Or are they okay to go back into the game? So how did this come about? Because the simulator is part of a bigger training platform from what I understand, right? Absolutely. The background goes to my background, which is in simulation. I am a professor of nursing, taught nursing for a very long time. And nursing training is on the forefront and has been on the forefront of using simulation to train the nursing student. The idea of simulation is to recreate an event that is highly realistic. You put the student or the learner into that situation and the story unfolds. They respond. And sometimes they make mistakes, sometimes they do things correctly, but regardless, it's in a safe environment where they can make mistakes and then they learn. Uh, It's an environment where you get an emotional connection to the situation because you are in it, you are experiencing it, you are living it. And that through science and all kinds of research has shown that that creates deeper learning and longer lasting learning. So, With that background in simulation, we wanted to take that forward so that people that could be involved with players, athletes, or actually anyone that experiences a concussion, that they would have that training where they were immersed in the situation, experienced a variety of symptoms, were able to make some, we called them assessments. So it would be testings or observations that could be made and to help them understand the severity of the situation and what to do best. We want that learning to be long-lasting, deep, because it's so important. And oftentimes when coaches, players, family members are required to complete some sort of training every year about concussion, it's really just reading a piece of paper with some information on it and signing that you read it very little learning actually happens. Yeah. Can you touch upon that a little bit more and like where you've noticed things are falling short when it comes to being able to identify concussions, number one, and then having the proper training to respond to them, no matter what level you're at, you know, if you're just a bystander interacting with someone or a coach. Concussion is a really serious issue and it's becoming more apparent that concussions or a series of concussions has long-lasting effects and that that, that people are experiencing those tr- really traumatic differences in their life as they age. And so we see some dementia and some other things that are really serious happening later. And part of the reason is that concussions have not always been taken seriously. And the idea here is that we know that it's serious. We want to make sure that the opportunity to determine the severity of this and the recognition of the severity of a 
that people are made aware of that. And so this tool was designed to have the learner actually experience the symptoms that this injured player is experiencing. That adds to the uh, the empathy that's created. Somebody can tell me that they're dizzy and I might go, okay, sure, you're dizzy. Yeah. Why are why am I concerned about that? When I actually experience, so I'm watching, I'm immersed in the simulator and I am feeling and I am seeing the dizziness, it's more concerning. I, I understand better what that is like. And so our hope was that by having some empathy about these symptoms that the injured player may be experiencing, it makes them more real. And then the simulator is part of a packet of information. It's online, obviously, but there are a number of documents that talk about concussion. There are some really uh, well done short videos that give a really good visual impression of what's going on with a concussion, what it happens, what it looks like, what it feels like. And then you have this opportunity to test yourself and your knowledge and experience this over and over again, making decisions and then getting feedback on the correctness or the direction that you should have gone. So we're talking a little bit about symptoms, some of the things that participants would be walking through when either experiencing or assessing a concussion or potential concussion. Uh, I'm wondering what kind of data went into what people are interacting with. You know, what kind of research did you do and like what are the most common symptoms of a concussion or what did you feel was most important to get right for people experiencing this in the VR setting? We have access through Concordia University to a nationally known concussion expert. Um, he is a faculty member in the athletic training program. And so we worked with him to help us create these scenarios and to ensure that the symptoms were accurate as well as the assessments or the tests were also accurate. And then combined with the response that would go in your decision that's made that again, these things were accurate. Symptoms tended to be things such as headaches, pain, it could be head pain, it could be neck pain, problems with balance, uh, dizziness, some issues with your eyes, perhaps not responding to light as they should, a lot of memory issues, not remembering what happened, not remembering typical things such as the months of the year or counting backwards, understanding what had just happened to you. Um, those were some of the big issues that were either assessed by asking questions, assessed by looking at uh, the pupils, like you'll be able to see the pupils and you can see whether or not they're moving. It also included some vital sign information, which would be heart rate and breathing. Those are the ones that are included in this one, as well as those symptoms that I just mentioned. The issue of concussions has gotten more care and attention, at least in the professional setting, but that's an arena, obviously, where we assume they have far more resources to do it. So who can take this course and why does it matter that it's accessible? Actually, anyone can take this course. So it could be used for an athletic training program, for example, that after the students have learned about this content, that they would have the opportunity to practice it. It could definitely be used by athletic trainers just as refreshing information 
again, maybe they're in a sport where they're not seeing a whole lot of it. It's not something at the forefront of their practice. Uh, it would be good just to practice these things. Uh, it also can be used by anybody who's going to be in a situation or could potentially be in a situation where they would see somebody that's injured. And it's designed in a way that it would not be over your head if you do not have medical background. Every symptom that the athlete experiences is explained. Uh, every question or that you ask the, the player or any test that is done, you will see the response pop up on the screen. And then when you make your decision, you get feedback based on that decision. And obviously being VR, as you mentioned, it's for the safety of everyone. It's, it would be hard to have on the job training for this, right? Because that would require someone potentially being injured. Absolutely. The, the nice thing about this assessment trainer, it is augmented reality and it can be accessed through AR headsets, but it can also be viewed and interacted with on any medium. So cell phone, laptop, iPad, all of those are accessible and you still get that immersive feel to the situation. So what kind of outreach is the program trying to do so that more people can go through the training to help care for athletes or anyone of all ages and all levels? Since most states require some sort of concussion training every year by those people that are involved with the athletes, whether it's a parent coach or a hired coach or athletic trainer, any of those people, they all have to complete this training every year. And so our goal is to get this out there as one of those tools that would be an option for meeting this requirement. Academia is often a driver for developing new tools, and this was done under CU Ventures at Concordia. Can you explain the model that this is? Concordia University, Wisconsin and Concordia University, Ann Arbor merged in 2013, and we are considered one university with two campuses. The Center for Simulation and Innovation was started here in Ann Arbor, but it is connected to Wisconsin because again, we're one university. But there's an arm of uh, Concordia University, Wisconsin called CU Ventures. And it's an arm of raising money to facilitate projects and things within the university, as well as for the university to encourage faculty members to create new products, to start new businesses. It helps the university as well as it helps the faculty members. And so that's where we sit. How have you found the experience of coming up with an idea, developing it, and now seeing it through to a platform that is accessible as a training tool? It's been really exciting. It's been challenging, I, I do have to admit, because uh, as a nursing faculty member, I've been focused on teaching and coming up with innovative ways to teach and make sure my students are learning. And that part of it was easy for me. It, the business part has been more challenging is getting the word out and how to do that in the best way. Well, Dr. Fenske, thank you so much for joining me today and telling me more about the Field Assessment Simulator. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Cindy Fenske is the Executive Director of the Center for Simulation and Innovation and a Professor of Nursing at Concordia University. She joined me to talk about their Field Assessment Simulator, and you can find out more information at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our Community Connection Line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. 
Milwaukee is known for its cream brick. We'll tell you why and how it's being preserved today next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Many of Milwaukee's historic buildings are made of milky yellow bricks, giving it the nickname Cream City. The masonry blocks are a sense of local pride for Milwaukeeans. But why? And how did they get here? Lake Effect's excret Nunez speaks with historic preservation planner Andrew Stern about the history behind Milwaukee's famous bricks. As someone who moved here a little less than a month ago, I've heard Milwaukee be referred to as Cream City. How did the city get this nickname? So the Cream City name um, developed because of the multitude of cream brick buildings that were found throughout the city of Milwaukee um, and southeastern Wisconsin in the 19th century. The the brick-making industry was very large here, and we had some very prominent um, businessmen, George and his brother John Burnham, and they had brickyards on the south side of the Menominee River Valley that produced millions and millions of bricks. They really started kicking it into high gear in the 1850s, and then their business lasted in the valley um, through the rest of the 19th century. Their children ended up um, becoming brickmakers too. But the, the brick that was produced there, as opposed to a, a red brick, was a soft cream yellow color. So when brick buildings were constructed, they used their local brick. And just the multitude of buildings that were going up were cream-colored. And Milwaukee developed the nickname of Cream City based on the, the number of brick buildings that we had here. So that kind of leads me into my question of why did the city rely on using these like soft cream-colored bricks for its buildings and not the average red brick? Because of the clay that is found in the Menominee River Valley and, and along Lake Michigan, the clay found here is higher in magnesium and calcium. And when that burns, it dilutes the effect of the red iron that's found in the clay. So the clay is fired very hot and it produces a cream-colored brick. And in the 19th century, before the railroads were here, it just would have been really unfeasible to ship bricks. Um, So that was our local product, and we embraced it. We loved it. And it really brought a lot of attention and renown to Milwaukee and helped us develop this identity. People would come and visit and then write home about this beautiful yellow city. And uh, it really kind of helped put Milwaukee on the map as the city was developing. That's really interesting. And so does its history primarily have ties to Milwaukee or do other cities in Wisconsin and beyond have a history of its own using these bricks too? Yeah. So Milwaukee had the largest industry um, that produced the Cream City bricks, but we also shipped millions and millions of these bricks first to the East Coast and then later with the development of the transcontinental railroads. A lot of Western cities would use the Milwaukee brick as a facing brick And there's evidence of a number of the bricks being sent to Chicago following the Great Fire down there. The cream uh, Milwaukee brick was used for a number of lighthouses along Lake Michigan on the Michigan side. It was used for a city hall in Utica, New York. Um, And there's also a a funny story um, from one of the newspapers um, describing how the editor of the Albany Journal kept a single Milwaukee cream city brick on his desk for people to come and look at. And and the newspaper article was speculating that there would be orders of Milwaukee brick to Albany before long after people see what a fine product it was. 
You mentioned what the brick is made of. Is it still used today to build structures? No, by about the end of the 1920s, a number of factors helped kind of end cream brick production in the city of Milwaukee. Architectural trends had really changed by about the turn of the century. A lot of structures were starting to use marble and stone more prominently. Also, it was easier to get red brick shipped via railroad here, so a lot of red pressed brick was showing up in the city. Also, a number of the clay deposits were just exhausted by about the turn of the century, and the demand wasn't there for it as much anymore. Fast forward to today, where can these cream-colored buildings be found throughout the city? Yeah, they they are still around, obviously not in in the numbers that they once were. Um, It's amazing if you look at photographs of downtown from the 1870s and 1880s, like almost every building you see is a brick building. Um, So unfortunately, the city doesn't quite have that number of structures anymore, but there are some great locations to check out. I would say Walker's Point is a great area where there are a a number of large commercial and residential structures that are constructed of of cream brick. And there's some really nice warehouse buildings down there that were constructed of cream city brick. Closer to downtown, the brewery districts, um, Schlitz Park and then the Pabst um, Brewery Complex a large number, if not all of their um, buildings that were originally part of the um, part of the brewery complexes were constructed of Cream City brick. But the Cream City brick is kind of known for picking up environmental damage that could be in the form of algae growth. But definitely with the number of coal-fired power production and, and just method of heating homes from the 19th century, you know, through into the 20th century, um, if it hasn't been cleaned, those Cream City bricks pick up a lot of the dirt and grime. And it's interesting to see a dichotomy of like recently cleaned nice shiny cream city brick buildings or or some that haven't you know maybe been touched ever and cleaned ever um old saint mary's church downtown on on broadway is a great example of a building that hasn't been cleaned and it really wears its cream city brick uh grittiness pretty well but then there are a number of buildings especially over at the paps brewery complex that have recently been cleaned and look pretty shiny and, and almost as if they were put up within the last couple of years Interesting. Um, I guess this is a question of curiosity. Is it difficult to clean cream brick? Um, it, it can be. You always want to use the lightest, most gentle means possible when you're cleaning a product like that. And you certainly don't want to blast it or sandblast it or anything like that. That'll take the hard protective shell off of the brick, which can expose it to the inside. Then it'll erode a lot more quickly. So you'd want to use water to start with, and then maybe some detergents. They, they have specific masonry cleaning products that can kind of, over time, over applications, sort of wash away some of the dirt and grime. Gotcha. And so I know that the Milwaukee Preservation Alliance and the American Institute of Architects Milwaukee held the Cream City Brick Symposium last month. Why is it important for this part of the city's history to be recognized? Oh, I think it's utterly important that it's recognized. I mean, like I said, Cream City Brick really put Milwaukee on the map. It was sort of our badge of honor for a lot of the 19th century, um, and it's important to celebrate that and work towards preserving those that are still here so that future generations can can take a look and be like, wow, that building's been here for 150 years, and it was part of our historic fabric, and just celebrate the architectural history and the industrial history of the city of Milwaukee. Are there any current efforts to preserve cream-colored buildings throughout Milwaukee? Not not a citywide effort. Um, in order to have any sort of historic protection, a building would need to be locally designated at the city level. So just being placed on the National Register of Historic Places doesn't offer a protection against demolition. But if a building or buildings are locally designated, then anytime demolition would be proposed, it would need to go to the Historic Preservation Commission for review and discussion. But 
there isn't like a citywide ordinance that would protect every cream city brick building in the city. Although, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a horrible idea to me, but I, I think politically it might be a little bit difficult. But yeah, it would be on the commercial building owner or the private uh, residential owner to be responsible for taking care of their cream brick buildings. Understood. And so um, in addition to working in historic preservation, I know you're the author of um, Cream City, the brick that made Milwaukee famous. What made you want to study the city's history with the cream bricks? Well, I grew up around here and I always admired and appreciated the architecture and, and the cream brick buildings. And my family has a farmhouse that's been in our family since the 1850s. And the actual house was constructed probably about 1870 and it's a cream brick house and I always loved it. Um, and then when I got to graduate school, and it came time to figure out what to write my thesis on, I was like, well, Cream City Brick is really cool. Uh, and as I started to do research about it, I found that there, there wasn't a ton of literature about Cream City Brick. There, were, there was a, a great essay that architectural historian and architect H. Russell Zimmerman had done in about 1970. And then there was another master's thesis from a gentleman from the University of Chicago that primarily looked at technical specific side of Cream City Brick. But I was like, wow, it's you know one of my favorite things and it's about Milwaukee and I love Milwaukee. Um, so I was really enthusiastic to, to sort of go forward with it. What's something interesting that Milwaukeeans might not know about its history with the cream bricks? Okay, so this is, it's kind of a weird story. I don't think it's like too morbid or anything, but apparently um, on the south side of the Menominee River Valley, there was an old city cemetery. It was a pioneer cemetery. And um, at some point, I believe in the 1860s, all, and I'll put that in air quotes, all of the bodies were moved to Forest Home Cemetery. And the Burnham brothers, John Burnham, acquired the property to use for brick production. Well, it turns out that not all of the bodies were moved. And uh, there are articles in the, in the local papers of, oh, uh, workers at the Burnham Brickyard discovered uh, another, another bunch of bodies in, in the brickyard. And you know, they're removing the, the larger bones that they can get out of there, but uh, the smaller ones, they're just grinding up to use as brick. And, and another article a, a couple of years later that was like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're finding more, more bones in the, in the old cemetery. And it quoted, uh, it quoted an architect being like, yeah, I, I know that, that there are buildings in downtown where you can see the bones in the brick. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm like, for people who are not like seeing me, my mouth was like, what? Um, that's crazy. I guess it gives a different meaning to, to bricks being the backbone of the city of Milwaukee. It oh might, actually, might actually be the backbones. <laughs> Wow. Um, this is, yeah, that was definitely very interesting. I'm not sure a lot of people know that, but. Yeah. It's a pretty weird story. So I guess next time if you're, if you're in front of a Cream City brick building, it might not be a large chunk of lime that's sticking out of the brick or it, it might be, I don't know. <laughs> we could speculate. We could speculate. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I really appreciated this conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Andrew Stern is a senior planner of historic preservation for the city of Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effects, Excret Nunez. You can also find a bubbler talk about Milwaukee's Cream City Bricks at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we examine a taxi program for people with disabilities that ended last month and how people who use the service are adjusting. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.